Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Carmen Melendez-Vasquez, who is a professor of biology at Hunter College in New York City. And she does research on actomyosin regulation and myelin formation in central nervous system. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. And your research is very interesting, but first I want to start a little big picture, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So your research has some implications for multiple sclerosis, yes? Yes. Which is a neurodegenerative disease. You could, you could, yes. You could okay, is that a fair way to characterize it? Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, compared to other diseases or other disorders, why are neurodegenerative disorders a little tougher to, to tackle or understand? Well, I just think because of the sheer complexity of the brain. I mean, you have to uh, understand that in the brain or even your peripheral nerves, you don't have just one cell type. You have many cell types that come together to organize this kind of uh, uh, supra structured in a way. It's not that that doesn't happen in other in other organs because you know, but it's just the interactions between those cells that made this organ function. And uh, in the case of the uh, diseases that I'm interested in, or the mechanism that I'm interested in, which is myelination, this is probably one of the most um, uh, intimate, if you want, relationships between two different cell types to uh, come together and make something functional, okay? So there is no uh, good brain that can function if the glia is not part of that. And, of course, I study myelinating glia, which is the target of diseases like multiple sclerosis, as you mentioned. But there are other types of glia that, as we learn more and more, we become more aware that it's not just about the neuron. People think, you know, this is a neurodegenerative disease because it affects the neuron. But what I can right. tell you is that if your glia is sick, mm-hmm. eventually your neurons are going to be sick too. So a glia, a glia or glial cells are yes. different type of nervous yes. cells. Yes. Okay. You know, there is even people that will consider that glia is just like a different brain altogether. Okay. Right. To begin with, you'll be surprised that uh, to learn that for each neuron in the brain, and we know that there are many of those, okay, there are 10 times many glia, all right? So you cannot think that the glia is just there sitting pretty. You must be doing something. And, um, of course, from the beginning, when people start doing neuroanatomy, um, the neurons are, are, are beautiful cells and, of course, very striking and very important. And some of the methods that the earlier neuroanatomists use will highlight uh, the, the neurons in, in certain ways. But uh, there was always this, this awareness that there was a lot of other stuff there that we just didn't know. Even Cajal recognized that the glia were, were something probably that was interesting, but he basically outsourced that project to one of his uh, mentees, you know, um, uh, Pio Ortega, that spent, you know, as much time as Cajal trying to characterize the glia system and um, uh, uh, that, that Cajal, you know, tried to make these beautiful uh, maps with the connectivity of uh, uh, neurons in the brain. So we know they're there, but for a long time, you know, we thought thing well glia which literally means glue like just like (laughs) keeping all the things together but i think that we become a little bit uh, wiser and it's not that the neurons are not important of course they are no doubt about it but these cells are not just glue they are more than that and and you know that's what uh um, i am interested so is is when because we hear the phrase gray matter a yes. lot of we think what is that the glial system or is that part actually, of it or no, no gray is matter gray matter and white matter as as you mentioned are are actually referring to two different compartments the gray matter is essentially where most of the neural cell bodies are located oh. and uh, those are 
and non-myelinated, all right? So the myelin only forms along the axons, okay? The, the, the extensions coming out of those neurons, mm -hmm. not even dendrites, okay? Because you have the neurons, cell body, dendrites, axons, sort of like classical anatomy. Yeah. Uh, so the myelin only forms in the axon, and that's where the white matter is coming from. Wow. So the white matter are actually the myelinated tracts of the neurons. So you have the way that the, archi the architecture of the brain gets put together is that the gray matter is where the cell bodies of the neurons are, and then the axons extend, you know, they start growing as that development comes together, then comes myelination, and some of those tracts get myelin, and that's where they become whitish, because uh, myelin is very rich in lipids. And it forms this kind of, you know, like cover that makes disappearance when you just like at the macro, at the macro level, very striking between the areas that don't have myelin, which mm -hmm. most of the cell bodies are enriched for, and the areas where you have the cable type of structure, which are the axons surrounded by myelin. Right. So myelin is an important part of myelin, like you said, is lipids, which are fat molecules, mm -hmm. to put in simple terms. And so, what else about the structure of myelin should, should we know? Well, uh, the, the structure of myelin, uh, in the in the in the simplest terms, uh, as I mentioned, uh, y y if you think of the axon as the cable, that is the is the way that the, the electricity, okay, the nerve impulses are carried through the nerve, okay. Um, the myelin, in the simple form, can be seen as the insulator around those cables. But when you look closely at that insulator, it's extremely interesting because it's not random. It's, 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 it's a very uh, organized uh, structure to that uh, membrane, which is essentially made by the glial cell, depending on which type of nerves are you looking at, whether they are the peripheral nerve or whether they are your central uh, uh, nerves, you know, in the brain, the spinal cord. Uh, the cells are different. The ones in the brain are called oligodendrocytes, and mm -hmm. the ones in the peripheral nerve are called the one cell. Um, these cells come from different parts uh, of the uh, ectoderm during development, but they end up doing something that looks similar in terms of, you know, macro, macro organization, which is essentially this vast expanse of membrane, like uh, lipid membrane, that wraps around in a sort of like concentrical way around the axon. And how many times that membrane goes around is directly correlated to how uh, thick your axons are. It's mm. actually a very constant ratio between, you know, the size of your axon and how much myelin is put there. And uh, in addition to that, when you actually look at the membrane of an axon, it's not that all axons are myelinated. There are axons that could work perfectly well without myelin, okay? And uh, those are, for example, sensory fibers, you know, conductors of pain and that, things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at the membrane of, uh, of an axon that is not myelinated, the organization of things on that membrane, like we're talking about channels, you know, like so, uh, uh, voltage-sensitive channels, like sodium channels, so potassium channels, they are essentially extended all over the membrane. But when you look at a myelinated axon, all of that is redistributed. It's like almost like you are you are redecorating your membrane. So now you have areas where there is no um, um, uh, sodium channels, okay? There are the areas where you have the myelin covering And then there are those areas that don't have myelin where now all of these channels are going to be concentrated, forming essentially almost like a, like a little battery type of uh, structure. So if you think of the nerve impulse coming from the initial segment, which is a part of the neuron where the nerve impulse is generated, uh, the the polarization of the membrane, so the way that that, it, that the nerve impulse is transmitted along that expanse of the axon, now essentially jumps from the way it's generated to the next available 
cluster of sodium channels, which is called the node, right? Okay. Because everything else in between is covered with myelin, and the myelin is an insulator. It's essentially an insulator. Uh, okay. So what that means in practical terms is that myelinated fibers can conduct much, much faster, faster. than okay. uh, non-myelinated. Right. And uh, that's a great advantage. That's a great evolutive mm-hmm. advantage, you know, like either because you can run faster from the animal that's to eat you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also <laughs> because uh, for us, as you know, as uh, as um, like to believe you know the most evolved vertebrates, right? Okay, um, the computational power of our brain, okay, the way that we do all of these very high, um, high order activities like you know, thinking and computing, whatever that wouldn't have been possible without you know, our cortex and the amount of pack that we have there in terms of the neurons wouldn't be impossible mm-hmm. if our axons were not malinated as well. Because the only other way that you can achieve that kind of uh, uh, conduction velocities by increasing the size of your axon. You know, there's a whole bunch of electrophysiological, you know, formulas mm-hmm. or whatever. But essentially, if you really wanted uh, to have a brain where that works like ours and no myelin, that's not feasible because, you know, the capacity or the size of those brains would be impossible. You know, they would be probably compatible with mm-hmm. what we do. So, you know, in a very relatively small space, by putting this membrane around, we have. Uh, or, or, you know, evolutionally, we have come with a mechanism that we can have very small axons of, of thin axons, but by putting myelin on them, we can achieve very fast conduction velocities. But when you're talking about size of axon, are you talking about the thickness or the length? Uh, well, uh, mostly it, it, it could it could affect. Um, I mean, both are important, but I think in that term, um, when it comes to myelin, we're mostly talking about the thickness. Okay. okay. So the the um, there is this ratio which is called the G ratio, which you know is a, is, a, is a little bit of a lingo, but it's essentially when you measure the diameter of your axon to the diameter of the whole fiber that would include the axon plus the myelin, mm-hmm. all right? So that's a very constant uh, number when you look at peripheral nerves and when you look at central nerves. And that's essentially an indication of um, uh, how much myelin there is for those axons to work very nicely, okay, to, to, to conduct that disease. So any changes on the G ratio when axons either lose myelin so, or gain myelin, you know, hypermyelination is, is happens uh, in some um, models and in some pathologies, will disrupt conduction velocity. So, you know, it's a very tightly regulated process. It's not that, you know, it's, it's not right, random. Right. And the, the, the role in, in conduction is essentially what, what uh, was first uh, um, described, inspired, or, or understood, okay? But there, are, there is more to myelin than just being the insulator of uh, the axon because as we learn more, we realize that it makes a lot of sense to have those glia that, especially if you're thinking the nerves where, you know, the, the body of the cell neuron may be in your spinal, you know, the dorsal root ganglia, and then you have these very long axons that are going to project towards, you know, your arms or your legs or whatever. And to, imagine if everything has to come out from the cell body of the neuron to keep those axons well and alive and functioning. Turns out that a lot of the metabolic support for neurons is also coming from glia, all right? Um, more recently, we started to realize that uh, what we call the trophic support of glia is, is totally very important for axonal survival. So you may have a disease like multiple sclerosis, which, in a sense, begins just by being a, a, a problem of the white matter, okay? The neuron mm-hmm. is not necessarily sick. This, the sick part is the oligodendrocyte that is making the myelin that, for different reasons, okay. It starts losing myelin, okay? And when that happens and you don't have a mechanism of the mechanisms that are in place to regenerate the myelin fail, now your neuron is getting sick. 
because it's totally different to never have had myelin and function as a non-malinating uh, axon that have had myelin and then you lose it, you, you it. don't really recapitulate the same type of, you know, like um, function right. uh, after that happens. So, so it, it, in MS, multiple sclerosis, there's, there, there are two types, really. There's the progressive type, which mm-hmm. uh, if a person gets uh, any signs and symptoms, it progressively just gets worse and worse. There's also a relapsing type where the signs and symptoms sort of appear and disappear mm-hmm. periodically. Mm-hmm. So when... When there, when those symptoms are disappearing, let's say in in, in the relapsing uh, version, is is so what's happening there? That's where the repair. Right. So that, is, that's is, a it's a great question, and yeah. you know, like full disclosure, I'm not an MD, so you know, maybe some of the things that I'm saying here uh, could be refutable for clinicians and things like that. But <laughs> sure. in my understanding as a biologist, there are actually many different courses, you know, like clinical courses of the disease. When a person comes to look at the doctor with all of these neurological signs, okay, for example, for a man, they start with something called like optic neuritis, in which they know they can have these episodes that they go blind, and then you know they can see again and. Uh, is, is essentially believed to be a reflection of conduction uh, um, block or, or, or essentially failure of conduction. And uh, when I explain that to my students at my seminar, it's like, imagine that you have this very high um, uh, motor, I know, like, like, like a motorway, like a high speed, you know, like... Um, uh, the, the name in English is evading me, but you know, like a highway. Highway, exactly. You have like a very fast highway that is beautifully myelinated, and all of a sudden there is this gapping hole because you lose a chunk of myelin, right? And you're driving your Lamborghini, and all of a sudden you have to go like come to to a screech because you know, like you are losing now current. You know, like the the, the stuff is not going to go as it should be, and that's essentially what you are seeing. You are seeing almost like a little short circuits of conduction, right? The, the the body in general, the cells, they try to, to compensate for that. They try actually to redistribute all those channels again, but they also try to put myelin back. Mm-hmm. And the myelin is not necessarily equal to the way it was originally, but if it's good enough to re, re um, uh, regenerate the action potential, it will go. But the truth is that those actual potential now are not going to be at like a total fidelity copy of that they were initially. So you lose that kind of safety in the transmission of your impulses. So that could be related to some of the symptoms that with these patients that come off. So then, what damage the myelin? Okay, and I think it's very well uh, uh, believed or accepted that even though we don't know the original causes, there is a very important component of the immune system, you know, attacking uh, the myelin or the oligodendrocytes cells that make myelin. What triggers that? What, the, what triggers that inflammation in the brain uh, is still, you know, very contentious. It's a virus. It's some kind of autoimmune. We, we don't know. But the fact is that when you have inflammation going in your brain, it's not good, all right? And when the patient comes and they go to an MRI, you can actually see those lesions, which are essentially inflammation. You know, active plaques have a lot of inflammation going on. So then the patients get um, immunomodulators, which are essentially targeted to to try to dampen that very aggressive um, uh, immune response, you know, inflammation within the brain. And uh, when those uh, signals go out from the MRI, some of those patients can come better, right? So whether or not the improvement in clinical signs has also to do with remyelination, which uh, you would suspect if you just look at the physiology is, is the case, right? We really don't know because we don't have a direct way to assess that. As, as, as I speak, there is a lot of people trying to prove that uh, amelioration of you know, remyelination is, is important for clinical uh, outcomes, and I believe that as well. 
But um, what we directly measure when we are looking at the, these people getting better or, or not getting better is that how these lesions resolve uh, in terms of the inflammatory response. Okay? okay, so then you know you do need inflammation or at least some type of inflammation to promote uh, um, to promote uh, uh, healing. Okay, just like you know when you cut yourself, there has to be inflammation right. for mm -hmm. for them to be repaired. So there is a, this double component. But, but I do think that remyelination is one of the things that will make these people get better, and without no doubt, it will protect the neurons. So what yes. happened with these people when they start getting uh, worse and, you know, the, the prognosis, they start getting um, losing motor, you know, um, um, uh, control or whatever, end up in a wheelchair, is that at that point, those rest repetitive processes are not functioning. It's a sort of the okay. chronic state. And at that point, you are looking already at, at neurodegeneration because your neuron is gone. And, of course, uh, or it's damaged, you know, the action is damaged beyond the point that it can be remyelinated. So the whole point of the research that I do is try to find ways in which we can uh, stimulate that uh, re repetitive process of the of the um, of the axon that helps us smiling. So we know that there are cells there that are able to come back and recapitulate mm -hmm. some of the things that they do when they're smiling again. So we're trying to understand what what makes those cells do that, okay? And whether during during um, injury. Some of those mechanisms that are activated during development when you are first making myelin can also be, you know, cocked again to promote endogenous repair. But right now, the people, when people get better or get sick, you know, all what we are treating is the immune response. There is at the moment nothing that we could be absolutely sure uh, that will directly impact the capacity of regeneration of those cells that can make myelin. Of course, you know, if, if the bad inflammation goes away, you're probably helping the environment. But in addition to that, you want to, like, kickstart those cells after the inflammation has gone to make more myelin and keep it. Okay? Mm, so good. it's this sort of idea here. So myelin, we're... It... Are we... We're not born with all of our axons myelin, myelinated, right? It, it happens early mm -hmm. on in development. Is that, well, is actually, that when you look at the central nervous system, by the time that you are born, um, you have some spinal... You know, it, it, it proceeds from the... Uh, from the back towards the um, towards the cortex. Okay, so essentially, yes, you know, like uh, little kids are still myelinated. I mean, you don't until you reach your full, you know, size as an adult. Of course, your nerves are going to be getting bigger and and that sort of thing. So I would say that it would be first to say that myelination is probably a postnatal uh, event, even though some some tracts can be myelinated. Some central tracts are talking about spinal cord will be uh, myelinated by the time that babies are born. But full myelination, I, I would guess, won't, won't finish until, you know, you join uh, adulthood, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the peripheral nervous system, certainly your nerves uh, uh, are not myelinated. I mean, I'm, I sort of bias here because I don't look a lot of humans, I look a lot of rodents, okay? <laughs> and in the rodents, you know, myelination starts about... Uh, a couple of days, you know, you start seeing uh, peripheral nerves start getting myelinated, but they are born with no myelin in the periphery. And I guess humans have very little as well at, uh, when they are um, uh, born. And um, that makes sense, right? Because yeah, yeah. infants have less motor right. control. Yeah, than, of course, than, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so they go together. No, it's not mm -hmm. just about synapses and things. Like, there is also myelination going on, and mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to say. But yes, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a mostly postnatal, and, and it's, of course it's also regulated by the activity of the neurons. We know that now as well. Mm -hmm. And um, um, so 
or like carry on or stuff that or, I don't know you tell me I, I guess sure we can take a break if you need to answer it. And, uh, no I don't really know who it is so <laughs> we just let it go but it's kind of difficult to talk with it since ringing in the background that's okay we can so carry you, on you're gonna stop oh, oh okay it's gone it's gone it's fine that's alright you had to make those decisions right, quickly <laughs> so no um uh, what are we talking? Yeah, um, for example, eye opening in in the rodents as well doesn't happen until you know a few days after they're born. In the mm. same day, octic nerve when when they're born doesn't have a lot of myelin. It happens postnatally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a it's an ongoing process, and, and I'm unsure that some of the things that promote neural connectivity are also affecting uh, the development of myelin. You look at how uh, glia the glial system mm -hmm. helps to myelinate. Axons, yes, and there, are, and you mentioned that there are Schwann cells mm -hmm. that, uh, so I'm, I'm guessing Schwann cells and oligodendrocytes are part of the glial system, right? Yes, they so, are. They are the, the myelinating glia of the peripheral on the central nervous system, respectively. So, so Schwann cells, right? Respect. So Schwann cells myelinate the peripheral nervous system, and the oligodendrocytes uh, myelinate central nervous system mm -hmm. to the brain and spinal cord. Mm -hmm. How does? Well, first of all, you work on actomyosin. Mm -hmm. Regulation. So actomyosin, let's kind of deconstruct that a little bit. So actomyosin is a actin and myosin mm -hmm. complex, right? So mm -hmm. actin is a skeletal protein. Yes, cytoskeletal. Yeah, yes. Cytoskeletal. So cyto meaning cell. So the mm -hmm. skeleton of cells. Yeah. And myosin is, for lack of a better term, a motor protein. So right. the the complex. That's kind of how I guess, for example, how muscles work. Yeah. Right. So how does how how do these proteins or how does this mm -hmm. cytoskeletal system interact with uh, myelin? With myelin. All right, so that was essentially my 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 uh, uh, interest in the, in this field. You know, I, I love to look at cells. I mean, I'm cell biology is the hardest. That's what I would say. And uh, it is very striking to see how those uh, uh, cells change shape as they become you know myelinated. Okay, and all of this very complex interactions between the axon and the cells that makes the myelin. So I always saw that 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 the skeleton of the cell, the cytoskeleton, um, was important. But you know, the cytoskeleton is not, it's not just actin myosin. There could be many other things. I just been focusing on actin myosin because um, before I came to Hunter and I had my own lab, I had this observation when I was still working as a postdoctoral fellow at NYU that when you interfere with that actomyosin system, uh, specifically with the motor protein myosin, uh, non-muscle myosin, the outcome of peripheral myelination central mesh is completely different. So the Schwann cell, when uh, I interfere with drugs or target uh, sRNA, you know, like silencing RNA, they essentially stop very early. They, they cannot really uh, interact with the axons in a proper way that is conductive to making myelin. With the oligodendrocytes, I found something very striking, which is, was that they couldn't care less. I mean, in fact, they made better myelin. They actually mm. got, um, if we were actually able to measure how many uh, pieces of myelin, or internodes, as we call those cells we're doing in culture, uh, we see an increase of, you know, like uh, uh, two or three times more myelin per oligodendrocyte in the culture. So that was a very uh, fascinating finding for me, and I wanted to try to understand what that was about. And the other thing that uh, um, made me study this is because when you look at the way that the Schwann cells myelinate and the way that the oligodendrocytes myelinate, 
even though the, the structure, you know, and, and, and the end product in terms of how the axon get organized is comparable, the way that they approach the process is very different. Each one cells essentially basically take a territory within a lone axon and only make one piece of myelin. So when you are thinking about peripheral nerve, to cover the whole span of the peripheral nerve, you need many, okay, hundreds, thousands of shunt cells to cover the whole thing. Because each of those is just going to make one uh, piece of myelin, okay? We call that a one-to-one -one association, and the process where that happened in development is called radial sorting. Essentially, the Schwann cells start by grabbing many axons, and eventually, if an axon is going to become myelinated, it makes this kind of exclusive association, one Schwann cell, one piece of the axon, and that's how I make myelin, okay, in the peripheral nervous system. By, by one piece, are you, are you, do you mean the one piece is myelin between the nodes? Yes, so that's exactly. One, piece? Okay. one piece of myelin between, we call it the internode. Internode. Okay. Internode, right? Okay. Because it's just that piece. Right. And this is a very tight association between the, the axon and the Schwann cell. So with the oligodendrocyte, it's different because the oligodendrocyte, there's a nucleus maybe, you know, somewhere up here, and then, you know, you get all of these beautiful processes. It's this highly branched cell. And all of these processes will go contact axons that are not necessarily the same axon. They could be in different tracks, okay? And depending in which, on the, in which part of the nervous system you, you look at, you have oligos that make very little pieces of myelin in the internodes, you know, five, where you have oligos that can make 20 or 40 pieces of uh, myelin or internodes, right? Okay. So that already told me that there was a fundamental difference in the cytoskeletal arrangement between these two cells, which is, you know, it's, it's not that it's news, but I, I found it interesting. And because I saw the differential, I wanted to pursue uh, a little bit more as to how exactly the actomyosin cytoskeleton was regulating um, the the potential of myelin formation by oligodendrocytes and Schwann cells. So we have pursued that line of research, and of course, because of the um, the potential uh, relevance of uh, an enhancement on central malination by manipulating cytoskeleton, at least for me, it was, I decided to check whether me, my um, in vitro data, which was very consistent with published, you know, a couple of papers on that, uh, will be trans could translate to repair. So to do that, we decided to go in vivo. So we we regenerated some mice. So just to, just a review: in vitro right. yes. means in a dish. Yes, right? in, in vitro means dish. that you are, you essentially there are very neat tricks that you can do in mm. in vitro in a petri dish, as you say, or in a cold sleep, in which you can purify your neurons and then you purify your glial cells and you put them together and they. They recognize each other, they like each other, and if everything goes right, they actually make myelin in, in, in the petri dish, in oh, the dish. Wow. Okay. So then that's, we do that in my lab, and, and it's a lot of fun, it's beautiful, we have all of the techniques and imaging techniques and stuff, we can do that. But of course, you know, it's, it's petri dish, it's not your body, so you always want to, to, to sort of validate, okay, your, your data in, in, in animals, if, if it's possible. And of course, you know, myelination is a, is a vertebrate adaptation, so you either use mice, or you use, you know, fish, uh, uh, or you know, kind of use humans, obviously, you know, <laughs> but um, then, you know, you have to move into that kind of, uh, of, of models. Mm -hmm. So what we decide to do to test whether these observations about increasing in malinformation when you uh, don't have actomycin were applicable to repair, what we did was to make a mouse in which we could essentially take myosin away uh, in the adult brain. So that's what is called a conditional inducible knockout. So essentially these mice are normal. They, they are born, you know, with their brain intact, as we can tell, and then after they reach a certain age, we give them a drug, which is tamoxifen, which is used for, you know, uh, 
cancer, you know, it's, a, it's an estrogen analog, okay, similar to that then goes into um, into the cells that have these constructs, these genetic constructs, and basically excise the um, helps with the excision of the myosin gene. And we're doing that in an animal that is perfectly healthy and doesn't have any other issues. It develops myelin normally, and then after that we go and do a little lesion, demyelinated lesion in the brain of the mice. And you can do that in many ways. We choose to do a very uh, simple model that is essentially a, a, a detergent type of um, um, compound is called lysolecithin, which essentially when you go with a very fine needle uh, inside the corpus callosum, which is a heavily myelinated tract in the brain, you put a little bit, just like a few microliters, and then after a week or so, you get a very small localized demyelinating lesion, which basically means the myelin is dissolved. The axons are are left naked in that area. The animals don't get sick. This is very small. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of difference in, in, in the quality of life of this animal. And then, if you wait for a couple of weeks, you will start seeing signs of that endogenous recovery because it's a very small, acute lesion. And then, if you wait another three weeks after that, or 30 days, you know, so it's, it's resol it resolves. Okay? So, we use that model because we know the sort of like course of this, and it's a nice, clean model. Cleanish, mm -hmm. is, 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 uh, <laughs> of uh, pure demyelination, all right, or, or or just local focal focal demyelination, which is not the same FMS. Okay, MS is more complicated than that, but at least allows you to assess just right. what the myelination demyelination is. Mm -hmm. So we did that, and we asked the question: Will not having myosin around somehow help with the recovery of that lesion? All right. And what we found is that, yes, when we look uh, in the time frame where those animals were starting to remyelinate, and we saw the size of the lesion, and we compared the animals that uh, were wild-type, okay, so have the myosin there with the ones that didn't have the myosin, we saw a huge difference in the size of the lesion. Those lesions were smaller. And we so went the ones that did not have yes. myosin did a better job exactly. of repairing lesions. over a okay. period, exactly. So okay. essentially when you measure the size of the lesion at 14 days, which is what we call the, the, the peak of remyelination, those lesions look better resolved, okay? There was already mm -hmm. more myelin in those lesions than in the other lesions. And of course we were very excited and we had to do a lot of controls because, you know, remyelination may be affected by um, not just the cells that are remyelinating better, but you could have more or less inflammation, you can have more or less... Uh, uh, reactive astrocytosis, which is another component of, you know, like uh, uh, malination. And even though the, there is no a kind of a global immune response to this type of injury, there are macrophages and other type of immune cells that will come to help clear the, the, the damage. So you have to control that none of these other factors, you know, is, is could give you uh, an explanation for what you are seeing. So we, we were pretty convinced that, that we have uh, a repair just by not having myosin. And we published that. That was the thesis of uh, my first patient student that graduated here from Hunter. So we were uh, very excited. And how is that relevant to, to, to that? Well, to me, um, it, it is uh, relevant because there are already in the market drugs, approved drugs, uh, that will uh, target some of the um, proteins that regulate the activity of myosin in cells, okay? okay. So, um, and we have tested some of those drugs in, in, in vitro, and we know that they work doing that way. Of course, it's different when you try to do something in humans, and in, not, not just how you target your drug to the specific target that you want, and uh, don't have other collateral uh, effects going there. But right. some of the drugs are already FDA approved for other things, you know, because they, they are known to be um, um, essentially vasodilators, so they were 
the way approved for other uses. And what I think we have shown is that there are other pathways that could be uh, um, explored and, and exploited to, to do that job that I was telling you. It's not just about the inflammation. Of course, inflammation is right. important, but if there is mm -hmm. anything that we can aid that will promote that, uh, that would be good. So I'm showing that by... And possibly with less side effects. Right, right? exactly. Can, right. So then uh, if we can somehow target the cytoskeleton, maybe not with that particular drug because they may have other issues with other cell types, but with something then, uh, uh, the fact that the cytoskeleton becomes more plastic, okay, we're working a little bit on the mechanism, but the simplest explanation that you can think of that and just concern to the cytoskeleton, this is an oversimplification. I'm sure there are more other things that we'll find as we get deeper into this research, is that you cannot make this kind of myelin structure if you have an, an, a, a, a skeleton that is rigid because, you know, after myosin generates tension. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're thinking of membrane expansion, which is essentially what myelin will have to go through, you know, ah, making like okay. a very expansive membrane that then has to be flexible or motile and all that have to wrap, right. you cannot think of a very high tension membrane it don't get a lot of tension. I mean of course it has to be ectomyosin contracts, right? That's the contract creates cortical tension. tension. So yeah. I, I in my in my more uh, sort of like simplifying way to look at that is that you have to release cortical tension in order for malination to proceed or uh, or at least part of that wrapping process to proceed. Oh, okay. And that could be part of it. And um, right now I think that it's a little bit more complicated than that. But mm -hmm. my student liked that idea and in fact you know like he he he, he gave a talk to he gave a title to his talk that something like why oligodendrocyte had to relax to myelinate, which I thought was very appropriate. And uh, yes, you, you got to relax if you want to get good myelination. Mm -hmm. So we, we keep exploring that. And just to give you an idea as well, there are other models of demyelination. Uh, oh, sorry, there are other models of MS that are more like MS. No, not that focal model that we use. That was just for us what we call the proof of principle that that may work. Okay, right. But other people have been doing for a long time different models that are called... Um, immune-mediated models, which are more like a mess. Still, nothing is perfect. You know, you're always modulating, or you're always modeling some aspect of the disease. There is no such mm -hmm. a perfect model. But in that model, which is called EAE, experimental allergies and cephalomyelitis, what you do is uh, immunize these susceptible strains of uh, mice or, or, or rats with um, purified um, myelin proteins, antigens, and they elicit a, a, an immune response, peripheral immune response, which has a component of T cells and B cells. And depending which antigen you use and what strain of mice you use, you can actually replicate some of those clinical courses we were talking earlier, right? You, do, you could make a, an EAE that is more like chronic progressive or, mm. or, or chronic relaxing, sorry, or acute and remission. You know, you have different right. protocols to modulate what you want. Mm -hmm. So when you do one of these uh, uh, a very popular model, which is a mock-induced myelin oligodendrocyte lycoprotein-induced EAE, you get something that has clinical manifestations that are compatible with what the MS patients were. And some people have used this model to look at this drug that I know uh, affects myosin activity, actually mm -hmm. down-regulates myosin activity. And there is like a couple of papers where they have reported that those animals uh, don't get as sick as you know, the, the, um, oh, okay. the, the ones that don't receive the drug. And, of course, they're looking at, a, at an immune response, and they are looking at immune markers, and they see that the drug has an effect on the immunity, all right? So, that, so they are interpreting their results from the point of view of the effect on the immune system. But uh, I think that, in addition to that, they may actually be also helping with the endogenous repair or the remyelination. But they didn't look at that because that's what we're looking after. So I think our animals, or transgenic animals, are an ideal model to look just at the glial contribution 
to this, to this repair process, okay? Because it's actually very difficult in EAE to, to pinpoint uh, if remalination is happening. You can see, but it's a lot of work. I mean, in terms of EM, finding the lesion, trying to assess that. So it's always being studied mostly from the point of view of immunity. But I think all animals can offer a way to, to decide that, to decide whether if you see an animal that is sick with EAE and now you have cells in which that particular activity has been taken away just from the oligo, and you see that they also don't get as sick, all right? So then you can say, well, this is, this is also tapping into the uh, endogenous repair mechanism, right. and that would be very exciting. Right. So we're trying to do that now. It takes a long time because animals have to be in a certain genetic background, and we're hoping that we'll get you know, some pilot grant to, to carry on characterizing uh, what's going on with these mice. But that's as long as we have gone in that part of the, in the, part of the project and the research. So... Okay. Well, that's really interesting stuff. I mean, yeah. it, there, there's just a lot of implications that it has mm -hmm. for, for possibly... Yeah, well, I, I, I like, I like I to mean, think that. I like to think that, I mean, that, that people... Also, the thing is that when you say set the skeleton, you know, um, of course, you know, the, the DNA is very important. Transcription factors are important. We had this sort of like uh, like nuclear-centric, like everything, you know, like right. you, you, you DNA, start with yeah. the nuclear, and, yeah. and that's true, but I always say, you know, to my colleagues, sometimes when I go to, I, I invited to give, you know, seminars and stuff like, doesn't matter what the brain tells you to, you need to do, if the workers going to strike, I'm not going to get mad, <laughs> like, yeah, so yeah. Is there, I think that we know uh, quite a bit of um, transcriptional regulation of malination. It's not that we know everything, it's not that it's not important to know this and to know more, I mm -hmm. absolutely agree, but my question is, like, once we have the right transcription factor, when we have a regulation of all of these um, proteins that are need to be put in the myelin, how does this happen? I mean, how is that we, we get to make myelin? And I think that this, right. is, a, this is a fascinating cell biology mm -hmm. uh, uh, problem with me, uh, for me. And yeah. I think that we, we, we haven't uh, invested as much on, on, on that as we have invested on, on, on transcriptional regulation. And, you know, I, 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 because I like working with cell, cell biology, that's what I got interested in. But the more I do and the more I see it, the more convinced I, 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 I am that this sort of regulation or coordination, at least, of what is a skeletal that with the process going on in the, in the nucleus are, are very important. And I have another project in the lab in which we try to do that. We try to see uh, uh, whether malination is actually a, a, a process that is responsive to, to, uh, um, to changes in, in changes in cortical tension, okay, so this is a mechanosensitive uh, type of thing. I mean, there's a little bit crazy idea that happened. There was another crazy student that wanted to pursue that. <laughs> but the idea is to see how changes in the cytoskeleton would actually impact the programs of differentiation in real cells. Mm -hmm. And we sort of, like, followed also that, that, that path, you know, like, we're trying to put a, a manuscript out there for now. And, you know, what we found, lo and behold, is that, Yes, you know, oligodendrocytes seems to be very um, uh, sensitive to changes on, on the on, on the tension of the uh, that you expose them to, and then when they are in an environment that is more like the brain, in terms of this the stress stiffness, they malinate or they different. We didn't assess malination directly, but we did assess differentiation markers. Uh, it's better that when you put them in something that is more uh, uh, um, stiff, you know, and mm. you see multiple sclerosis, especially in those sort of chronic cases that people have been sick for for ages, they are very hard lesions, you know. I haven't seen one, but I have it from very good pathologists. Like, you know, Dr. Cedric Rain, that is a collaborator in sort of my place, to tell me that, you know, you can actually feel it when these very old uh, lesions are there. 
And that could be... Through the skin? Uh, no, no, <laughs> to the brain. He's a pathologist. <laughs> He's a pathologist. So okay. he, has seen, he has seen a lot of this okay. post-mortem, you know. Post-mortem. Uh, post-mortem. So, um, and again, you know, we're talking about a very long time course. But, you know, that tells you that uh, in addition to all of these... Um, transcriptional and, and biochemical, you know, we think about factors, cytokines, I mean, I'm not saying that none of that is, is, is irrelevant, but mm-hmm. I think that we have all of these uh, other things, because these are cells that do elicit a behavior, and in the case of malignation, there is so much of cytoskeleton that is going to be important in terms of regulating what the cells end up doing, so that's essentially where, I, where I'm concentrating on right now. Mm-hmm. And how, how long ago did you know that this is what you wanted to pursue. You said that when you were doing a postdoc at NYU, is that when you first started work? Or when did well, you first encounter myelin? myelin oh, yeah, or, that, that's funny. Yeah. I, I actually, this very long time ago, I mean, it's just that my interest as how to approach the study of myelin has been evolving ever since I first came across the myelin. I very first came across myelin as an undergrad when I was in my country. I, I graduated as a biologist in Venezuela. I went to the Central University of Venezuela. And uh, when I was about um, in the fifth semester of my career, I don't know how you correlate that with, with the system here, but probably like a couple of years, couple, two and a half years of my years. career, um, uh, I got the opportunity to go and work on a research lab in the Venezuelan Institute for Scientific Research, EVIC. And uh, the person doing that, uh, the, the, the position was to help a grad student that was characterizing myelin-basic protein using um, X-ray crystallography because uh, that was one of the early techniques that people used to mm-hmm. look at the structure of myelin. Right, it's an imaging technique. Uh, yes, yeah. an imaging technique that, that essentially is, a, is an order structure. This packing of the membrane is, is very older. So my mentor in Venezuela, Dr. Leonardo Mateo, who passed sadly a few years ago, he was a biophysic interested in the study of those structures and how they were affected by changes in pH, you know, like changes in um, osmotic uh, uh, pressure and uh, things like that. And if you get a nerve, okay, from a, from a rat or an animal, and you put it on the path of an X-ray diffraction, the diffract, uh, uh, X-ray, sorry, and you get a pattern, you get a pattern of diffraction, just like, you know, if you get crystallized DNA, you get a pattern of diffraction. So that's what he's thing. And then if you change the protein, so you have mutants of myelin, if you have things, you could see changes on that pattern. So that that's how I got my introduction to myelin. So uh-huh. very, very, very basic biophysics of membranes, okay? That's what I was doing, biophysics mm-hmm. of membranes. And when I was in that lab, of course, you, you get to read, and if you, if you are diligent and you really like what you're doing, you, you start reading. And while I was reading, um, I, was, I was in love with immunology. I, I always thought I was going to be an immunologist, because I like And then I, I came across with a mess, because I always wanted to say what, you know, as much as I love to do these little faces of lipid and protein, what that has to do with people that get sick with a mess, right? Exactly. And then I, I, I understood that um, it's a disease of myelin, and it's autoimmune. So I saw, like, an opportunity of sort of combine my combine my interest. two things, you know what I mean? And my interest on, on the molecular structure with something that does have a clinical relevance. So I took a whole bunch of courses in immunology, and uh, but I still was working on myelin. And I did my PhD uh, in England. I went from Venezuela, I went to my PhD. And I sort of keep it clinically, more close to clinical. So I actually work in a lab that uh, was trying to identify auto autoantigens that were relevant in... Um, polyneuropathies. It's not a mess, it's just like demyelinated diseases by the peripheral nerves. Mm-hmm. So I spent like, you know, four years uh, trying to find um, potential markers, potential biomarkers that will sort of be useful in f- uh, figuring out, you know, like people will get uh, worse or better or can we actually um, be able to 
categorize these patients. You know, this is tend to be a little bit difficult because, you know, by the time that, that the patients are in, in a wheelchair or whatever, it's just like you don't really know if the autoantibodies are there because they were pathogenic to begin with, so they are just a manifestation of such massive damage to the myelin that they are just, you know, like hanging around and the myelin is gone and, you know, there is just an immune reaction to something that is circulating. So, you know, that, that was sort of my, my, my foray. It was okay. I learned some things. I did mostly biochemistry during my, my training as a PhD, but I realized that it, I really wanted to understand more of the, of the system, you know, the basic system of cell biology behind that. So I went from the absolutely molecular to the sort of translation to human. And then when I came to the U.S., I decided I wanted to learn cell biology, and that's what I've been doing. So I think that my realization that I wanted cell biology happened at the end of my PhD when I kind of realized that it's not that it's not important to, to, to study humans, but if you want to understand, sometimes it's, you have to simplify. You have to write, really take those, those things and, and put it into small pieces. So I thought mm-hmm. that this in vitro systems of myelination, which is a lab that I was uh, at NYU, that's Dr. Jim Salser. We're still uh, collaborators and talk a lot about science and life. Um, I wanted to learn that system, and, and he, he, an excellent lab to do that. So that's, that's, I came already thinking that that's what I wanted to find my niche. So now I've been doing that, okay, since my postdoc, and, you know, and now going back to, to animal models, you know, more relevant. So, you know, I think it has been very uh, consistent, even though from the outside may not appear to be, but uh, <laughs> I think that I got interested in Maui from the beginning, and uh, I had always found something that interests me, either, you know, um, intellectually stimulating or, or just of course the, the clinical implications are, are very important but it's so beautiful I mean like you really have to see yourselves they're beautiful I mean they're really great yeah. and I just thinking well it's not only they're beautiful they do such an important this is such an important job right. um, and we need to understand their job if, if we want to help you know people where that structure goes uh, already so. and something you mentioned earlier is that mm-hmm breaking things into little parts to study yeah. them, right? That's very important in, in mm-hmm. science. When you're trying to uh, tackle, uh, let's just say a disease, when you're trying to understand multiple sclerosis better or any disease, there's no real macro way to go about it. You have to kind of take a micro approach, right? Like if you read any paper on, on, on studying any disease, it's not, unless it's a review, if it's it, it won't tell you, oh, we found out 20 different things about mm-hmm. this disease. It'll be no. maybe five different experiments, yeah, right, exactly. leading up to one conclusion, right. maybe about a specific pathway that might, yeah. right? I mean, so it's very incremental. It's, and I think that's, that's essentially, well, I mean, like, I say that we, we I believe that the, the majority of the last, uh, and certainly a small labs like my lab, take a, what we call, you know, a reduction in approach. And that's not necessarily a bad word. That sometimes just you need to do that. And that doesn't mean that you're going to lose sight of what's important. I mean, why is that you're doing this? What is that the specific question that you try to, to address? Because I say, you, you can make very big questions in science and, and you can address very big questions in science, but you cannot address big questions in science most of the time with big experiments. Exactly. Okay? exactly. It really takes, uh, as you say, you know, an accumulation of, of body of work and Granted, there are labs there that are big enough that can probably approach one problem and one question from many different angles, right. and that's great. That's you know that's, that's excellent. Or well, in our case, we know we're good at doing certain things, and we try to use that to to our maximum advantages to try to 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 push what we have to to answer specific 
questions that then we can put into the context of what is now, and it could be extremely important and interesting. So I think that that's where I found, uh, at least so far, my niche, the stuff that I like to do, because uh, you know, I've been doing that for a long time, and I think as, a, as an undergrad, I didn't realize how complex it was, you know, and as you become, you know, like older and wiser, as I say to my students, and, and I consider an expert because I have made many mistakes in a very small field, so I'm going to say that, and I think that's a beautiful definition for what an expert is, mm-hmm. um, but it also makes you more focused. And you know when you are doing a certain experiment that it's not going to answer your, your particular specific question, which is important because you need to control for many things. You know, that's why you do it that way. But you also are thinking, where am I going to put that piece into the big context? Right. So then, you know, it's like this huge jigsaw. And then everybody's like sort of concentrating into, into a part of the, of the puzzle. And, you know, that's why meetings are important. That's why, you know, collaborations are important because sometimes you may have a piece of the puzzle that someone else is missing and then when you come together you see a bigger picture now so right. the things become clear and clear mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm high in collaborations I mean I actually collaborate with uh, uh, one of my colleagues here in physics mm-hmm. he loves optics you know Dr. Lim and he makes microscopes which I think is super cool okay so he doesn't buy microscopes he makes microscopes <laughs> you know he buys the pieces and puts them together which I think is fascinating and he has a very cool technique that he 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 believes, and, and he's right, that could be useful for some biological problems. So when he came to me with his technique and asked me, what's your problem? So we found a commonality. We found how his technique could help my problems in terms right. of, you know, myelin imaging, which which is really relevant to mm-hmm. some of the things that, not just for basic research, but also for uh, translational, you know, like the buzzword for, like, applied sign now. But uh, we had a lot of fun doing a project for which we didn't really have any money. But, you know, because we like it and we wanted to do it, we actually managed to do it. And we managed to publish it. And, and, and you know, people have liked it and have received good stuff. And, you know, that's what I love about this job, that you actually get to, to do that. And even if it's something small, but you feel that you have uh, contributors to that, it, it's very rewarding. And, and, again, as I say, I learned a lot of physics. He learned a lot of biology. Right. And, and now, you know, we, we do things together. And, mm-hmm. and we and now we see other things that were not there when we right. started doing that. And, you know, he comes to me and asks me things from his physics perspective. And, and then I can click with some of the things in biology. And then we sort of, and, and I think this is great. This is this is a, right. a great way to do. And scientists must do that more. I, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's yeah, like, very like important. Like cross-discipline yes. collaboration. And again, and I think that in general, that's where we are going. Because things, again, things are so complex. And, you know, the, the, the biology machine or the human body is such a complicated machine that mm-hmm. you really need, you know, the, the more the merrier. I mean, and, and we all bring some kind of um, um, important skill or, or tool or, or ways to see uh, the, the same problem that are, that are going to be conducted to to making you know insights that are that are relevant and maybe if they don't have a relevance that is obvious you know to to help these patients that are desperate for for solutions in in his lifetime and, and convenience that are are building the bol- the body of knowledge that you need to ultimately tackle those diseases because yes diseases of the brain and we're talking about MS but we also have Parkinson we also have Alzheimer we have all of these other uh, diseases, but I think that um, that especially now there is so much interest because we realize that we have an aging population, and then, and, and if anything, we're going to probably see more and more of this neurodegeneration disorders that mm-hmm. will become like a they are already like a big public health you know issue. So we need to do that. We need you know, and I'm sure you know about the the government Obama initiative to 
to do the brain, brain, brain mapping. Brain. Yeah, my only beef with that is that they didn't include the glia. It's like, how you can map the glia? <laughs> how are you going to go through the brain and map the neuron and ignore the glia? That's so they're only mapping right. neurons. Well, and I see why. It's, it's a okay. matter of, you know, the, the reagents that are there, and it's, it's a very neurocentric approach. But, you know, there have been some few dissenting voices, including some very uh, prominent scientists back at NIS to point out, excuse me, you cannot go through the forest, you know, and, and see all of those streets and just concentrate on the little bushes, right? Yeah. And you have to see. But it's, it's, a big, it's a star. And I think mm. that, um, you know, like the, the, the neuron people always tell that we, you know, the clear people keep complaining about the same. But, you know, it's like, how many neuroscience will have chapters in the year? I keep, you know, like telling that to, to my students all the time. I feel like it's my obligation to, to uh, especially here at Hunter, where I had the opportunity, to educate people about these other cell types that, you know, psychosis is a, it's a different system, very interesting and uh, extremely relevant to, to uh, human health and, and yeah, sounds the like functioning yeah. of, the, of, the, of the brain. So, and yeah, it's true, you know, everybody knows in Europe, and, and I think, this, as I say, that, you know, only, only the, the enlightened, nobly, <laughs> <laughs> but it's extremely, extremely relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe eventually if, uh, mm-hmm. let's say, the Brain Map Project is successful, maybe the next round, the next stage. Well, I'm hoping that they're going to start, you know, like uh, doing more. I mean, there is a lot. Of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about malination, but I remember I told you that astrocytes, astrocytes are impressive cells as well. I mean, they, they really are. And there's a lot of research also now in astrocytes as well because they are like, you know, if you think of the neurons and the malinated axons and the sort of like, you know, like direct type of connection, you know, like from A to B and, you know, the sort of like connectivity, the astrocytes is almost like you are broadcasting over a, over a large area because it's a massive cell. They sort of like peak into synapses. It's a, they're seeing almost like this sort of like a way of integrating this very complex, you know, um, um, uh, flows of information that is just not like linear through, through nerve impulses, but just... You know, that kind of a, um, how we put different pulses, you know, like they, they all come at the same time, you know, like how I know what's going on. It's, it's, it's massive. I mean, it really is. So I think there is no way that we're going to understand the connectivity of the brain or function just by doing that. Right. You know, it's like when, when people start doing the genome uh, project, okay, we, we get the sequence and we're going to understand how this works. No. Okay. <laughs> So now, you know, There's like so years later, yeah, we have, we have yeah. all of these um, letters and we know the coding regions and we know there's all this, uh, a lot of stuff there that, you know, some people say it's junk, some people say, no, it's not junk, it's actually, you know, coding is important for regulation. But, you know, I think that it, you, it may show appreciate that, yes, the reductionist approach is important, needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But then you have to come back and say, okay, reassess and say, okay, now that I know this, what am I going to do next? So how I can make sense of what am I seeing here? Because it's a puzzle. And we only sort of like, you know, like dedicate time to one piece of the puzzle at a time. So right. it's, I mean, a redu- reductionist approach, like I said, just sounds negative, but it, it really, it, it's sometimes it's important just to make progress or just to make yeah. something feel a little feasible. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. I think that it's important. I mean, I, I don't think that that is a waste of time. I think that it's an important investment of the time, but I just think that you cannot just do it. That's not the end aim, you know, they, that, that's part of the final picture, and it's an important part, but yes, you have to remember that you are concentrating in just one part of the system, and, and right. but maybe as as they go along, they realize, and, and someone's going to say, you know what, I think we should start paying attention to these cells here, because <laughs> You know, it's time to see very interesting stuff with the cells. And, and that's how it happened. You know, like, yeah. actually, I was very impressed with it as um, Cajal. As I said, I told you, so I, I like to read a little bit of, you know, the history behind it. He knew, he knew. It's not that he he, he, did, he willfully uh, 
you know, he, he knew of Eglia, but he, in his infinite wisdom, because he, he knew that if he tried to convey all of that complexity, then the message was going to be lost in, in translation. Right. So it, it's almost like he extracted just the neuron, mm -hmm. but he knew that other cells were there. It's just that he said, okay, you know, and I say, you know, I don't know exactly how his friend was, he had that, that kind of foresight, okay, that he was only going to almost like selectively take that without including everything because then it was going to be too much. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he has all of these preps where they clear were there, but he passed it to another person, he passed it to another student, you know, that mentee, sorry, Ortega, that published a book which is essentially characterizing just the clear of the CNS, like a, like a different thing. Mm -hmm. So now I think that we just have to marry those things somehow. Right. And, um, and yeah. what's the full name of uh, Cajal? Uh... Uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal. Okay. And his um, men, uh, mentee is uh, P. Ortega. It was another neuroanatomist that basically Cajal gave him, you know, the Glia project was for that day. So he spent, you know, as much, you know, time looking at Glia as Cajal probably just developing the things for the moment. So it's, it's there. It's not that people listen to that it's there. And I think, yes, reductionist approach are important. We learn from them, but then it's no way that we're going to understand the brain uh, function if in, in hell and in disease if we don't make Glia part of the story. So, right. you know, that's that's my, you know, that's my, <laughs> that's my argument is sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Professor, thank you so much oh, for pleasure. chatting me. It was a wonderful conversation. All right, all right. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mm -hmm. Termination of current scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.